This week, Deacon Charlie sits down with Monsignor Eugene Morris, a priest in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Oratory rector, theology professor, and media guy, Monsignor frequently gives talks on various topics related to the faith all around the country. Evangelization is setting hearts on fire first before you get to actually catechesis. So before you kind of deal the mind, you got to find a way to touch the heart. If we can touch people's hearts truly, legitimately get them excited about the faith and then get them to learn more about the faith in a way that isn't divisive. Although again, sometimes you can't help it because you're preaching the truth. People respond. In part one of this two-part conversation, they discuss how the various forms of media today can be used as a tool to evangelize. They also talk about the beauty and joy of embracing traditional liturgy in the church. This is Living the Call. Monsignor Eugene Morris, welcome to the show. Deacon, thank you very much. It's good to be here. It's so great to have you. You know, I I confess that I knew about you because I'd seen some of your media stuff even before we got a chance to meet, whenever that was, a couple months ago. When was that? It was April, the uh, end of April, uh, like the third week of April. Yes. This whole year is flying by. It but, is. Um, but, but what a great privilege to have you. And you are, I'm sure you've been told this once, you're a super interesting guy because you're, <laughs> you know, you've got, you're the, you're, you're the rector in oratory, you're a theology professor, you're a knight commander of the Equestrian Order, you're a fourth degree knight of Columbus, you're a Mariologist, you're a media guy, like there's a ton going on. There is, but you know, it's interesting. I, I don't find myself particularly interesting. And I don't consider myself particularly media savvy sometimes. So uh, I'm always, I actually just had a phone call with someone the other day uh, asking my advice about something. And we talked for a while. And I, I just at the end, I had to ask, why, why did you call me? I mean, why, why are you asking sure. my, my opinion? He's like, well, I, we, I've come across you and I've seen some of your stuff in the media and I wanted your opinion. I'm like, okay, I'm grateful for that. So I have worked very hard. This isn't really a false humility. I mean, I'm aware of the fact that I'm out there doing lots of different stuff and appreciate doing that. But I'm also, uh, I need to always remind myself, my primary, my primary understanding of myself is I'm a priest offering Amen. sacraments and getting people to heaven. So the other things I do as a way of helping that are just to kind of feed who I actually am. So I was going to ask you about that. And maybe, maybe the idea of being a Catholic media personality is something that you kind of recoil against. It, it can be a source of, of, of maybe, you know, distraction or even temptation, right? The idea that a lot of people who you may never meet have come in contact with the work that you've done. Like, how does that that idea, that moniker, that kind of descriptor hit you when you hear that uh, there's Catholic a, media personality? Um, it, 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 it doesn't sit well with me. And not because, again, I, yeah. I very much appreciate what all of you guys do who are serious about this. That's the other thing. I feel really sometimes like a dilettante. I know that you do this seriously. I know others who do, obviously— uh, do my radio work, but I always feel like I'm kind of on the periphery because people who are committed to this are making the effort to make sure that all of this good content, however it comes across, is available. And then there is the temptation, I think, to think more of myself and to try to craft my my life around making sure that I keep myself in the public eye. Um, yeah. And I have to confess, I was just talking to a good friend of mine, a good priest friend of mine this morning. Uh, you know, for a while there, I kind of felt like I was somebody because I was teaching um, I was doing uh, some work for Cardinal Burke when he was here in St. Louis, um, doing a lot more radio, things of that nature. Uh, then I kind of became nobody for a little while. People kind of forgot about mm. me. And now I'm kind of becoming somebody again, if you will. Things have kind of exploded in terms of 
uh, public speaking over the last several months. And sure. I confessed to my friend that I loved I, I loved being nobody. It was kind of nice. I did there was <laughs> there was no pressure of producing anything like that, and you know, no one's dissecting what I say, and except for my faithful, but that's okay. So. Um, but sure. having said that, I, I very much appreciate both the opportunity to be here today, but just in general, the work that you do and how valuable it is, especially because this is now how people are interacting with each other. So this is we, we have well, that, to be that, out there. That's the reality. I mean, so I, I, but I do I do think on the point you just made a second ago, there is this kind of beauty and anonymity, right? This sort of sense of uh, of of that sort of smallness and being nobody. There's there's a great peace that can happen there. And maybe the contrast between being somebody and being nobody is tough, but the actual being nobody is kind of is kind of uh, comforting. And I, I know exactly what you mean. But <laughs> you know, we are in this world where you know the the in particular digital media and these different sources of evangelization, these different ways to do it. It does make you ask the questions of like, well, would the apostles have done this? Would Jesus have done this? Right? Would you know? Would Saint Paul be on TikTok? Like all of these kind of things, because in a way, that is sort of the mission field. Yes, it is, and we have to take people where they are. And the church, you know, as we well know, especially with radio, was on the advent and on the front of it in a way that other people were not. And so, one of the first radio stations, I think, west of the Mississippi, was Sacred Heart Radio, which was started by the Jesuits. You know, so it's not as if we, as a faith, have not been involved in all of these. If whatever was cutting edge, if you will, either inventing it ourselves or certainly taking advantage of it. So e- even now, this is what we have to do. This is where people are. So we do it, you know, and it's, it's certainly I mean, in one sense, this is a lot better because you and I, you're in California. I'm in Missouri. Without mediated forms, we wouldn't be able to be together, you know. So for all of maybe some of its limitations, there are also some great opportunities to bring people together literally from around the world that you wouldn't be able to do without it. To the extent that you advise people on these various media, particularly the digital ones, particularly the mobile ones, um, what 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 kind of like thoughts do you give folks about um, maybe what the church's perspective should be on these different media, or maybe what an individual Christian's perspective should be on these different media? Because there's obviously a great deal of pros and cons. Yes, I think that um, you know. So I do a lot. I read a lot of Twitter. I don't. I, so I don't really use any of the forms that I have. I have an Instagram account. I have a Twitter account. I have a Facebook, primarily because my oratory does, and so I want to be able to monitor that if I need to, but I very much trust the people who take care of that for me. Um, but given especially the just the, the, the manner in which kind of people beat each other up through these formats um, yeah. and the uh, acrimony and divisiveness that come from them. Um, and then, of course, again, you know, it's kind of wading through all of the information that's available to us. It's almost overwhelming. I just tell people, look, you know, face to face is always better. If you can talk to somebody face to face, do that. So even the telephone, as valuable as it is, I would much you know if someone says, "Hey, can we talk?" I'm like, what, "Can you come in?" I, you know, mm-hmm. if we can't meet each other because again our schedules are such and something's immediate, let's talk on the phone. But I would prefer that. Now, having said that, as you said, you know that that limits what we can do. This kind of broadens that. But I think if we keep in mind the goal is to, uh, if the goal really is to evangelize and to you know that first step. I think of the document that I forget which one it was. It speaks about evangelization is setting hearts on fire first. Uh, before you get to actually Amen. catechesis. So before you, you kind of deal the mind, you got to find a way to touch the heart. If we can touch people's hearts truly, legitimately get them excited about the faith and then get them to learn more about the faith in a way that isn't divisive. Although again, sometimes you can't help it because you're preaching the truth. People respond. Just I tell you, just keep in mind what you're doing there. So like, you know, people get really caught up 
you know, on their Facebook or their Instagram or their Twitter and there's a lot of anger. I'm like, let's put it down for a while. Just walk away from sure. it for a while. You know, you're, you're always, none of us, especially I guess younger generations are ever going to really sadly be away from this. So it's not as if we're not going to know what's going on. And the real question you got to ask yourself, does it really help you to know everything that's going on? Mm. And that, you know, mm. and, and the answer is oftentimes it doesn't. Again, back to that anonymity or St. Therese's, you know, the little way, which I used to make fun of the all the time. Way. It seems so saccharine to me, but now I kind of get it. It's like, yeah, just, just, you know, stay in your lane is kind of the mantra we use here at the oratory. Stay in your lane, focus on what you got to do, and God will take care of the rest. And that does, you know, so when you're dealing with different forms of communicating with each other. It, that's also, I think, a good tool of kind of just kind of filtering out some of this stuff. I know you also work a lot with religious. Do you, Would there be like an additional layer of guidance or thoughts with respect to media utilization if it's a religious context? I would say most definitely. Um, you know, theological debates cannot happen online. They do, but so much is lost in translation. Um, I taught for a while online classes. And the thing that I, I found most difficult was actually not being able to gauge where my students were by being able to actually look at them, see their body language, what their faces were saying. Oftentimes sure. you could see somebody, I have a question, I don't know what the question is. So let's let's tease out what's in your mind. It, it's hard to do that. And since there, since everyone's voicing their opinions and that's fine, it doesn't really mean that. So I think for religious priests, consecrated religious brothers, sisters, whomever deacons, we have to, we just have to be more prudent and circumspect how we do that. I don't think we water down the truth. I don't think we back away if there are things that need clarification and we need to defend the truths of the faith. But, you know, there might be some times where we have to lose a little bit to gain a little bit and maybe walk away from a conversation where uh, we didn't, if you win the argument or win the day, but we didn't destroy the relationship that allows us to come back have a conversation down the road, you know. Now, again, it's a balance because obviously you want to present the truths of the faith uh, in their entirety and their integrity. But uh, again, you want to do it in such a way that's going to allow people to continue to want the faith as opposed to I was right. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, I mean, you've kind of touched on it a couple times already with this the initial sense of like setting hearts ablaze before we can, you know, move into more didactic kind of methods or catechesis or stuff like that. And I, and I do think that, you know, there's a, there's a tendency in, in these different media to really start from this very kind of polarized uh, perspective, right? Of this is, this is, you know, the truth or what is increasingly in popular, you know, cultures become sort of my truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, th th this is what I'm saying and it's different from what you're saying. And so therefore <clears throat> the kind of chaos ensues, but I think that there's a great you know, wind maybe blowing from the Holy Spirit about this sense of of in, of accompaniment, of engagement, of really, you know, kind of knowing someone's name and walking with them to get to where they're going. And I know that that's always been true. And, you know, it's not like it's a new thing. That's always been the case. But maybe there's a greater emphasis. And what we're seeing with all of this kind of really corrosive dialogue that happens online is the absence of that, right? We're seeing a lot of like position making on either side and this sort of chaos that results rather than this approach of, you know, hey, what's your name? Yeah. Hey, like, let me learn your story, and then let's talk about some other things. It, it's, it's not necessarily a good medium for that in, in, in many cases. It is, and I think we're realizing because the technology has advanced so quickly over a short period of time, I just think just in my time from when I entered the seminary to now priesthood, so approximately 32 years or so, 
from, you know, cell phones being rare and, you know, phone booths still being in existence and still using them to now people who would have no idea what a phone booth is except through kind of historical analysis. And so we're, we're finding, I think, as, as men and women of Christ, we're finding that uh, we're playing a, in a good way playing catch up to something that, yes, it, it, it is – it is in and of itself, it's kind of in and of itself, it's kind of a, um, neutral, if you will. But depending on how we're using and approaching it, it can be a tool for good or as so often is the case, sadly, it's a it's an instrument to to bludgeon somebody with their ideas and our opinions, you know. Um, and look, and I'm the first one that will admit publicly, I, you know, I love a good fight. I'll, I'll, I'll engage anybody in a in a good argument or a good debate. And that's great. Let's talk about the faith. Let's 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 talk, you know, but, you know, in the final analysis, I'm not doing it simply because I want to be right, because in truth, I'm already I'm already convinced of my rightness, uh, not True. in any way triumphantly. But, you know, I, this is who I am. I'm a Roman Catholic priest. I'm convicted in who I am and what I believe. So there is literally no conversation I will ever enter into where someone is taking an opposite position of mine, where I'm afraid that they're going to say sure. something to me that's going to make me change my mind. Having said that, I'm happy to hear them and learn from them in that regard. So I'm not close to their ideas. It's just that at my bedrock, I'm, I feel pretty solid. In which case, when I'm engaging people, I'm not, I'm not going to beat you up. You know, if you want to beat me up, that's great. I'm just as happy to walk away until we can come back and actually engage each other. And again, we think back to how all of this whole project of Catholicism began. I mean, the Lord, all he did was face to face. It was always, yep. and again, that's all he had. Yep. And you asked the question earlier, would the Lord have used this? Would the apostle, I think, I think he certainly would not have skewed completely, but I think he always would have preferred, even if it was kind of a, uh, you know, an amphitheater with 50,000 people, he would have preferred that than other forms of communicating with people. Excuse me. Yeah, no, I think I think I would agree with that. I don't think he would uh, completely ignore it, uh, but it would be a very kind of uh, you know tight use case that I think he would follow, and others might. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what Saint Paul would have done? But right. I think uh, I think Jesus would have probably had that 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 approach. It's also interesting to think about this idea of what you said, this kind of progress and how fast it's happened because it has been. It's it's been logarithmic, right? It hasn't been linear. It's not like. 20 years ago, we had like X percent less. It was, we had zero and now we have 10,000 or right. whatever it is. And I, I also think on some level, I don't know what you think of this or what you make of this, but I think on some level, this applies in all areas of the church and our view of the church, even as Catholics. Right? I think about Pope Francis as an example. And I know uh, Benedict before, I mean, he retired, he, he retired in uh, or resigned rather in, in uh, 2013. And of course we had social media, but from 2013 to today, right? So almost a decade later, the, the, we are in such a state of saturation with social media where every single step, every action, every conversation, every image of the Pope is captured, shared, amplified throughout the world. That is something that in 265 Popes, I believe 65 or 66 that mm -hmm. we've had, I think has only been the case for him to this degree, right? And so it's so much easier to see everything that the man does and whether you agree with everything or disagree with it, it's sort of amplified because you can see all of it, right? If I, I think of like, I don't know, uh, you know, Pope like Sixtus or, you know, whatever so in the Middle Ages, we have no idea b beyond what they wrote and maybe some historical evidence, like the fullness of the man, right? And like here, it, it just seems like we have this like 24-7 opportunity to watch. And in a lot of cases, that can turn to scrutiny you know, because of our availability to kind of, you know, ingest all of this data. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And I think, um, 
not just related to the Holy Father himself, but in general, the amount of information that's that's out there is it does not only does it saturate. I think in the act of saturation, it overwhelms us. So you, you think back a mm. hundred fifty years ago, uh, it, it was possible to memorize you know Shakespeare's sonnets and have familiarity with his plays and. Basically, you know, again, from a Western perspective, have a have a handle on the, the the corpus, if you will, of knowledge that needed to be known that that was broad. So, not scientific knowledge necessarily, or a particular field, but in general, everybody studied Latin. Everybody knew the classics. Everybody had read Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad and Virgil and Cicero. So, and it was it was easy because that was really all the information that we had. There were other things out there, but that required specialization. It required time. And everybody knew that that belonged, in in a sense, esoterically to that particular individual or group. Now, everybody has access to all of this information without, in a sense, the skill sets to kind of sift through all of that and determine what what requires my attentiveness and that which requires my attentiveness. How much of my energy do I need to expend on this? What can I simply push aside? So, when I got my first Twitter account, my, my, the, a very good lay friend of mine who's in media, that's what he does for various campaigns, said, you need to have – said, why? I said, I, my, what am I going to tell people? My life's not busy. You know, I get up. I pray. I celebrate mass. I may have you – know, there are things that I do, but it's pretty much the same thing. I don't, and I don't want people to know all, all about sure. it, not because I'm hiding anything because I actually am a public person, so I really can't hide. But it's just not that interesting, and yet – we we have become it, it's almost a it's almost a purient curiosity about things yeah. that we just don't need to know not because they're hidden we simply don't need to know and we really have grown to expect that we should know everything and i think that's then been extrapolated to not only knowing the business of other people but all of this information which is just simply it's overwhelming. So that leads us to then sound bites. And basically everything is from my position only. And I don't have the wherewithal to kind of navigate through what's good, bad, ugly, and throw away what's good or bad and keep what's good. So yes, I think uh, very much so. And of course, the, the Pope, under scrutiny anyway, I, I would say to a degree, John Paul II kind of set the stage for this because he came out of the walls. Um, yeah. And so traveled around and so gave us the kind of the rock star pope. And so we got to know everything he said. And of course, you know, now with the Internet, we can actually get all of the information like right now. And so rumors, you know, literally fester into fact. And the next thing you know, what would have taken 100 years to make its way across the pond now comes across in six seconds or 60 seconds or whatever it is. Sure. It's incredible, you know, and I think it's overwhelming at the same time. It is. And I, I think maybe roughly 80 or 90 percent of what folks are actually scrolling through in their feeds is it falls into the category of what you said, sort of stuff you don't need to know. Yes. Um, not because it should be hidden, but just because it doesn't actually there's no edification that comes from that content. There's actually one of the newest, um, uh, you know, apps to begin to, you know, these things start gaining some traction and then venture capitalists are pouring money into it. But one of them, the newest ones is a, a platform called Be Real. Which I don't know if you've come across this yet. But um, it, it essentially, all it does is allow somebody to send almost like a real-time picture and video of what they're doing at that particular moment. There's no engagement. You can't comment. But like, uh, you know, by looking at your phone, oh, my friend Billy's like taking a walk in the park. It's almost like this, um, it, it's basically like this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, eye of God sort of dynamic where like, I'm just watching what everybody's doing. Now, I'm not actually getting any, uh, you know, data from that from an engagement standpoint, 
but I'm becoming more knowledgeable about what they're up to. And I found that like fascinating <laughs> that this is something that is gaining so much traction because for years, the last decade or so, it's been all about engagement, community, interacting, sharing opinions, whatever. And here's this latest entrant, which is growing rapidly and has none of that. But it's all about just me knowing what you're up to if you happen to be in my network, even if it's like, you know, just having a ham sandwich. Yeah. It's, it kind of sounds uh, – remember that movie, The Truman Show, where they had the poor guy's sure. whole life on TV 24-7? Oh, yeah. You know, and everybody's conspiring to make sure that the show continues onward. You know, we all become participants in some way, shape, or form in everybody's individual little plays of their lives. And again, uh, again, I'm a, again I, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm a different – I'm a different age. It's a part of it. Thanks be to God. Why would you want to do that? I don't get that. Why, why, why would you want somebody to know all of those things about you? I don't know. Well, some of this is like, what would the person want to do? And the other part is how are these apps designed so that it doesn't really matter what you want, but it sort of feeds a particular kind of behavior. Yeah. So a lot has been made about algorithms and that kind of stuff. Probably the best example of that in, in, in right now is TikTok, right? TikTok is what I've described as it's 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 like a it's like a time machine essentially because you're on it for 20 minutes and then you recognize when you get off your phone that it's actually been four hours. Right. And <laughs> so the way that the, these platforms are designed in a way, uh, you know, goes beyond user intent or consumer intent. Right. There's this what you want, and then the way that things are being programmed, which may or may not be what you want, but nevertheless help you engage in whatever that behavior actually is. So it's really interesting because if you look at media historically, it's always been, well, the book is read because I want to read it or the movies watch because I want to see it or the radio show is listened to because I tune into it. But now we've got this additional layer of, yeah, you're, what you care about matters, but it also matters what the people who are developing these experiences want you to do. Mm. And that's a, that's a super new thing, you know, that we really haven't contended with or at least as much. No, I agree. Again, and part of it is, again, even as we're having the conversation, it just it it brings home to me, as a particular generation, how much I don't know. And as a part of it, it's hard to keep up. Um, and one of the things that's happened for me, in being the rector of the oratory and being more connected to traditional sacraments and traditional life in the church, is now I found myself going backwards. So everybody's going forward, if you will. I'm going back and reading things um, that are 100 and 200 years old now. Um, not yeah. because old is better, uh, but it does provide context for what I'm doing, um, especially liturgically. And I want to just I want to see and understand better evolution, the development of various prayers and masses and things of that nature. And so it's almost if a whole nother world opened to me that and it doesn't require if you I mean, yes, the Internet and mediated forms of communication are good because it makes the content available to me. But the content is value neutral in that regard. There's nothing polemical about it. Uh, it might be depending on how we might debate certain things, but even there, um, it's actually good conversations that edify and um, increase my knowledge as opposed to – so I, there's a lot going on that I don't know about. And not necessarily I don't necessarily not want to know about it, just I just don't know about it. And if I have to choose, I kind of like where I am and kind of what's happening. you know. So uh, even your invitation to be here with you, this is great for me. Is it something that I would do? Actually, I, I literally, I had the conversation – uh, two weeks ago with a friend of mine who does a podcast and he's like, I think you should. I'm like, well, okay, what does that mean? And we talked about it and he said, what well, you got to come up with a hook, if you will, you know, to be, talk about the faith. Well, everyone's talking about the faith. So what's, what makes you do or what makes what you're doing different? I'm like, I don't know. And he said, you know, you got to be yeah. consistent in the content and you got to be doing it all the time. I'm like, 
yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to pass for the time being. You're you know? going to pass. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I appreciate cause his, his initial exhortation was because you knew you have a lot to say. And I said, I, and I appreciate that. And I thank you for thinking well of the things that you've heard me say, but I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and we'll see what happens. I do want to talk about the oratory of yes. Saints Gregory and Augustine because you you mentioned it, but just really quickly on this on this point, and not to you know not to encourage you in any particular direction, but I will say that the thing I'm bullish about with podcasts is that they, in a way, are a bit of a contravention to the type of media that has become so 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 prevalent. So typically in podcasts, it is more of a long form conversation. It is a more nuanced conversation. It is a bit of an oasis where you can dive deeper into something and listen in a different way. And I think that if you look at that at scale, at the millions and millions and millions of people that are engaging in this type of media experience, I think it has some kind of bomb effect to kind of contravene the, you know, tweets and share texts and just, you know, six second videos and all this stuff that I think has, you know, helped to fracture so much of of popular culture. So I, I am encouraged by that aspect of podcast, which I think is very different than radio. I know you do radio, but I yes. think radio is, there's always a clock, you know, you got to, you know, there's a segment. It's like, you know, here we're talking, I don't know if this conversation is going to be three hours or, or 45 minutes. I have right. no idea. And I do think that that, um, you, you know, is, is is at least a check mark on the positive side specifically on on podcasting. Um, and, and by the way, I would listen to your podcast. Well, thank you. you. I, so. <laughs> and I wouldn't disagree that my experience of the podcasts that I do listen to and and a good friends of mine, one of the things that we all agree on is we appreciate the deep dive that it allows to happen in the conversation. And again, I think you're right. Whether it's television or radio, there, there is a, a beginning, a middle, and there's a hard stop. There yep. are, there's, a, yep. there's a production value for those as much as there is content. Whereas podcast is really about content and everybody knows that. And so if you're on a podcast, you're there because you want the information, not because you're looking for, you know, funny memes or whatever it might be. So thank 100%. you for the Yeah. No, yeah, no worries for whatever it's worth. So uh, back to the oratory. Now, yes. for those people who don't know that the oratory, which was established, you know, not not too long ago, right? This is 15 years maybe or so ago that it was established. We were just talking, we're at, uh, we've been here for so 15 or 16 years ago. Yes. I was just going to say for for those who may not know that the oratory this is um, this was established by Cardinal Raymond Burke when he was the Archbishop of of St Louis and it's 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 a non territory it's a parish basically that celebrates all the church's sacraments in their extraordinary form form is that is that a fair description It is we are a parish in 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 terms of um, how we function what makes us different which makes us an oratory <clears throat> is the canonical so oratories are are institutions in the church that are devoted to a particular group of people and tend to be non-territorial. So uh, the people who register at the oratory, the way Cardinal Burke set up the oratory, can remain members of their territorial parishes, but also participate in the life of the oratory. So my my parish, if you will, the boundaries of my parish are pretty much the whole Archdiocese of St. Louis. Um, but when you look at our website or our kind of the rhythm of our, our daily, weekly life, there's nothing really radically different from us than you would find in a parish daily mass, Sunday mass, confessions. Uh, we have a, a CCD program on Sundays. We have a co-op for our kids. We have a youth group. We have uh, a young adults group, a Knights of Columbus. Um, what else do we have? We've started something. We have a 
book club we started. So yeah, we're just doing kind of all that good stuff. What separates us obviously is our connection to traditional sacraments. Now, I have to ask, right? It kind of begs the question of how all of that, which, you know, even though I, I don't, you know, personally, and maybe availability or just custom is the reason why, but I don't participate often in the, you know, traditional sacramental <laughs> rites of the church, sort of pre the Second Vatican Council. But I understand, acknowledge, appreciate, and love their beauty and understand why people have a real resonance for for that, that, left, that type of spirituality. If for no other reason— then just that kind of experience is so fundamentally lacking in an American popular context that just by the fact that it's so different, you know, it kind of opens you up to the fact that there's something transcendent. If that was the only thing that it did, I'd be all for it. Right. But it kind of begs the question, Monsignor, about like the impact of uh, uh, Tradiciones Custodes, right? The recent uh, motu proprio by by our Holy Father Francis. How, how does, like in a practical sense, how does that, impact change or, or do anything to the work that you're doing at the oratory now? It, it has not. And I have to credit uh, my archbishop for that. Um, again, when Traditionis Custodius was implemented, which would be about a year ago on the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, 16th of July, um, it, 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 uh, it certainly articulated a, a vision for the place of traditional sacraments in the life of the church. Uh, and then gave to bishops kind of broad powers in curtailing that, basically, which was, which is the intent of that. Uh, what has also become clear in that year is uh, many bishops chose to do that, other bishops, uh, for various reasons, whether their own personal connectedness or the health of their diocese or their other things that superseded in terms of, of necessity, implemented bits and pieces of it. Some did nothing at all. Uh, so my archbishop has been gracious to allow myself, and there's another oratory here and another uh, kind of um, quasi-parish to uh, continue to celebrate the traditional sacrament. So um, it has really, you know, all that he's required of me has been to ask permission to do that, which I did. Uh, and in that permission to affirm, which I had no problem doing at all, uh, my adherence to the church in the post-conciliar period. I, you know, I mean, again, as I tell people, I, I, I fell in love with the mass, with the new mass, you know, the Novus Ordo. Sure. Yeah, I, became a, mm -hmm. I became a priest, uh, you know, I was born uh, six months before Vatican II ended. So I don't have a, a living memory, if you will, of the life of the church. There were bits and pockets still in the archdiocese, but, you know, that was more as kind of a a museum piece or uh, something uh, that, you know, that would catch my eye as a young kid, but not what the generation prior or two would have experienced. So um, there's no, there's no, if you will, animosity toward or dismissal of, it's just, as you say, there, there is a, a greater art, there is a greater ritualistic expression of the transcendence of what we are about in the rituals themselves. Sure. And the thing that I have most loved about it for me personally as a priest is, is I really can allow myself to get lost and I can get lost in it in a way that oftentimes was not the case when I celebrate the new mass where I feel a lot of not so much pressure anymore. And again, I'm a good public speaker. I'm good in public. So being yes, in are. public does not bother me in the way that I think it would for some guys. And in the older forms of the sacraments, the onus wouldn't have been on them, especially in preaching. You know, there's not as much preaching in the traditional reality as there is in the new dispensation. And again, um, 
I, I love preaching and I'm good at it. Uh, for guys who aren't, I could see where having to preach day after day, Sunday after Sunday could create difficulty because they're just not good at it. And, sure. and, and truth be told, some guys probably shouldn't be preaching, you know, not because um, they don't have, uh, not because they're not theologically correct. It's just they may not be good public speakers in that regard. So, no question. Those just, I it just, find that all the yeah. Time. So, um, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. No, I, th- I think you made a good, you made an excellent point. Actually, I, I kind of want to double click a little bit in the whole idea of getting lost. I had um, an experience not too long ago where I was uh, in the sacristy and the, one of the uh, DREs in, in my parish, I'm actually transitioning parishes, but my old parish um, brought in a group of school kids for mm-hmm. a tour of the sacristy. I didn't know this was actually happening. And um, she saw me, you know, she saw me in the, in the sacristy. This was after uh, one of the last mass on Sunday. And um, she said, would you mind showing, you know, the kids around and the sacristy? I said, sure, no problem. Let me just, uh, let me just divest here and then I'll, I'll show you around or whatever. And I remember one of the kids who had just been at the mass, when he saw me, he, you know, they, 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 they came into the sacristy after I'd taken my vestments off. And his comment to me was startling. He looked at me and he says, you're just a guy. <laughs> and I was like, and I was thinking to myself, cause I was like in my regular, I was like jeans and a t-shirt, I think, or whatever it was under my vestments. And Probably not jeans, but you know, whatever, just like right. a shirt and 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 pants. And um, and I remember it really struck me because when he was experiencing the mass, in a way, he didn't see me. And I th- I took that as a great comfort, you yeah. know, that he wasn't like looking at me, but he was sort of paying attention to the liturgy and and I never even considered vestments in that way, because vestments, you know, are commonly regarded, especially by people who might have a little bit of an animosity to the church as like these grandiose things, you're trying to make yourself like a peacock or something. But the the spiritual effect is the exact opposite in a way. It's like you do disappear. You can get, and as a, as a presider, I'm sure to your point about getting lost, but even me as a deacon, like you can be part of something, the liturgical movement that is greater than just you. But when you're up there, or if you ever were, and you're sort of plain clothes, you'd stick out like a sore thumb. So there's this great, like, I think it maybe ties back to the traditional, you know, rights of this sense of, losing yourself, right? And, and and by consequence of that, parishioners as well are sort of lost in that same mystery as well. At least I can make that connection pretty clearly based on what you said. No, and I would a, a thousand times agree with that. I, ha- I had a very, when I first, when we first arrived here, we were figuring out schedules and things like that because we share space with a Novus Ordo parish. So we're just kind of working out the specifics of that. I had a buddy of mine come and visit and I was celebrating mass for him. I didn't have daily mass at the time. So I'm celebrating mass for him privately. We finished mass. We're having breakfast together. And he said to me, you know, Monsoon, I had to tell you, at one point I looked up at the altar. It was one of our side altars. He said, and I didn't see you. Uh, mm. I didn't see you at all. And literally the space between mm. us was maybe a couple of feet. He and I were the only ones there except for the angels and saints. And um, it was a, just, it was a beautiful moment for both of us because, yeah, you shouldn't see me. And that's the beauty of ritual in any form, old or new, whatever it might be. The very purpose of it is to bring disparate people together. And by providing them common uh, language, common behavior, and it's repetitive and ritual, they can lose themselves in it and be caught up in something greater than themselves while still also being themselves. That only happens in God, first of all. But then when God co-ops, if you will, man's natural tendency toward liturgical ritualistic realities and uses them as a means to communicate himself to us, uh, it, it is to to have that thing where it happens to you over and over again. So I'm a golfer, and all every time I play golf, I think about muscle memory. 
the more I play, the easier it is for me actually to play the game. So instead of thinking about the 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 mechanics of my shot, now that I've played enough, I actually I can just approach the ball and not think about the mechanics of the shot, but think about where it's going to go. Where do I want it to do? I'm not that fancy, so basically it's just get further down the, the <laughs> down the green than I can or down the the fairway. fairway. But the, but even more so in ritual, it it isn't the the more we do it, the more it it becomes a part of who we are, becomes habitual. I can think less of what is coming next and more about the person I'm encountering by what comes next, and that's precisely what's mm. supposed to happen. And so losing ourselves isn't a bad thing. Because actually, Lord tells us again: you, you let yourself go, you're going to get yourself back ten, fifty, a hundred fold. That's what's happening to us. And my experience mm. in the traditional mass has been, especially, that happens more often than not. Uh, I have always been blessed to have the experience as a priest. I have never ever grown tired of celebrating the sacraments, and especially mass. I'm I'm a I'm twenty. What am I? Twenty six years a priest this year, just this past May. Um, Thanks be to God. Yeah, it, it it's been it's been a great blessing. Um, I never have tired of that, but there's something about the traditional mass over the last several years that has made me even, not only even more excited, but, um, you know, and you know this from your life as a deacon as well, you can be in the worst mood and then get yourself to mass and then Ooh. start entering into the experience and you not only are out of a bad mood, you forget what was wrong in the first place. And so well, by the time right. Holy Mass that's finishes, right. you don't even remember what what was wrong with me. Why was I acting like that? You know, uh, or if I was, I remember it and then I can kind of let go of it. I have that sure. experience happening more and more, and it's also beginning to spill over in every aspect of my life. So, you know, the the anonymity we were talking about earlier, uh, and part of that is, you know, I I I, I like it. I don't why I, I like it. It's it's making yeah. it easier for me to actually be holy. And as I get older, mm. I'm, I find myself a little bit more worried about that now. You know, I have friends of my age who are dying, and so death has mm. always been a real thing. But I'm not 21. Sure. I'm not 31. I'm 57. It's a real thing. And hmm. am I ready? And the answer is no. Yeah. I got to get myself ready. Memento Mori. Yes. That's a whole nother show. Yeah, it is. Do. Yeah, it is. I confess I'm a little bit puzzled and maybe you can straighten me out, but I'm a little puzzled on the, the tension, how much of the tension that exists between these different dispensations of the liturgy and how much of it is maybe just amplification of at the poles or at the margins of some of these things. I had somebody recently a priest, by the way, and this is just a, a casual conversation. We got to ta talking about a variety of things that were happening in, you know, kind of church circles or whatever. And he asked me my views on the Second Vatican Council, specifically on the post-conciliar period. And I said, I love the Second Vatican Council. I love the documents that came out of that. And I love the First Vatican Council. And I yeah. love the documents that came out of that. But there seems to be, and again, I don't know how much of this is real or how much of this is just amplification at the polls. There seems to be this sense that there's a tremendous tension between you know, these different dispensations of the liturgy, et cetera. And, and I'm being 100% honest. I just haven't seen that. Now, I, I know at the fringes, there's maybe people who literally are living this like super insular, you know, kind of brittle thing where if it's not in this parish and I don't sit in this pew and we don't do it this way and the priest doesn't say it exactly, like somehow things don't take. I'm sure there are people like that. As much as I'm sure there are people who, you know, think if there's not six inches of green felt and people dancing at the altar, that it's not real. But it, like, I don't see either of those as really a majority, um, uh, you know, contingency or, or constituency within this kind of dialogue. And yet everything that I read is about a lot of this sort of tension that exists. And how, what what's your view of this? Uh, like, am I making too little of it, too much of it? Like, what what, what is it? 
So I guess I would answer it this way. One of the one of the difficulties of the pre and post conciliar period is it it really was experienced at that moment historically for a great rupture between what was and what has come since. And of course, Benedict, when he promulgated his modo proprio, um, um, and allowed for a greater use of the traditional mass, spoke often, which he had done even before that, about this hermeneutic of continuity. The difficulty is when you experience it. When you're looking at kind of the data points, there doesn't seem to be that continuity. Meaning, mm. uh, at every data point, the, 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 over the last 50, 60 years, the church seems to be losing ground. Whether it's yeah. people cohabitating and not getting married, uh, people who are not getting baptized. So when I was a kid, there was there was no one who wasn't baptized, whether they were Catholic or Christian. You, I didn't know anybody who had not been baptized. Uh, obviously, um, divorce and remarry and contracepting to the same numbers. Uh, numbers are down in priesthood. Numbers are down in, in religious orders. So, and all of these things we would look at and aren't the sole determinant, but certainly are a clear indication. And if it were just one or two, you might be able to say historical circumstances, but it seems to be across the board. And so people are trying to make sense out of, okay, this is what we had on the eve. All of a sudden we had this historical event, and now we have these things that keep speaking about fruit and we don't know how to make of it. And then you introduce, um, you know, uh, traditionalist custodies and kind of an un, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It seemed to come out of nowhere. Um, and sure. the, 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 the harshness that at times is present in the document doesn't seem to fit. When, again, what, what's happening historically, when you look at where there is vibrancy in the church, it is yes. as much among the traditional communities as it is any place else. You know, of when course, we, maybe we, even more so. I, I would say I would hazard yes. Again, without actually statistics in front of me, uh, my own anecdotal experience is you know we've almost tripled in size in the four years we've been here, and I don't credit. I, I take no credit for that. So I say all that to say is I think that there are the brittle ends to this, but I think in part. I think the tradition. I think the tensions are real and true, yeah. and I think because I think instinctively we know that um, the the church isn't well right now. There's there's some serious things we need to confront, and we're all trying to figure out what is the best way to heal her right now. Would you say she's particularly unwell here in the U.S.? Uh, no, I think she's particularly unwell in Europe, much more so than mm. she is here. Uh, Americans, interestingly enough, I, I think we're a much more religious lot, contrary mm. even to what statistics are saying today about our young people who are not a acknowledging any faith and not defining themselves as such. Um, I think the desire for them to connect, the desire to put down their phones and be with each other, um, kind of their resistance, if you will, to authority does emanate from Again, maybe it's a human spirit, but there's something about the the American spirit that does appreciate the transcendence or the transcendent. Mm, um, yeah. So I, I think there's I think there's certainly much greater potential for, if you will, a great awakening to use borrow from our Protestant brethren in the beginning of the 20th century um, here for us both among Protestant culture, but more importantly among Catholic culture, Catholic reality. I think it's more possible here. And maybe primarily because we never had the thoroughly uh, kind of um, 
mixed church-state relationships that went on in Europe. I, I'm not a proponent of the separation of church and state as a constitutional reality. I know that's a different conversation. But certainly in Europe, in the relationship between the church and the monarchies and the developing republics, a, a lot of interaction and a lot of entanglement. And I get it historically. We could parse it out at e- each epoch. But we aren't subject to that, which I think makes it easier for us to appreciate and to eventually appropriate the beauty and necessity of religion, and I would say necessity of Catholicism. Do do you think that that the, and I, by the way, I agree with you on Europe. I guess I I I just meant is there like where does the does the U.S. sort of rank globally with respect to that um, that unwellness that that you describe? But I definitely agree with you. Europe. I was I was there not too long ago, and you know, pretty much churches are essentially museums. Yes, in a lot of a uh, lot of parts of uh, of the continent. And it's 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 shocking to 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 see, but do do you like when you think about this moment of inflection going back to the Second Vatican Council and this sort of rupture? And I didn't live in that time. I didn't live at the conclusion of the council. I didn't experience this personally. My parents did. But do you think that the the issue there is largely one of implementation, or does it go beyond that? I'll give you one example. And this is just one thing, and um, there's maybe a thousand, but. If you look at the at the documents that came from the council, like uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium as an example, and the retention of ancient languages being part of the new rite, the new liturgy. I mean, we have we have Greek and, and Latin in my parish, but I also know because I travel like you and I speak like you at a lot of different places that I think by and large in most um, you know most parishes they've retained little to none of the ancient languages, but that's not. A, an instruction of the council, at least as I read it, but a kind of implementation of the council. So is it, a, is it a mix of both things? Is it mostly one thing, implementation versus substance, or, or how do you make it? No, it's interesting because I, you know, you know my background. I was a sacramental theologian. I still am, but I taught for about 15 years. And um, so this is where my energies are put, or have been put kind of intellectually uh, as a priest. And it's a... Um, I won't say it's an ongoing developmental reality. I think I've kind of um, come to a conclusion that I think it is a combination of both content and implementation. And okay. I would lean more on the issue of content because mm-hmm. had the content been more clear, it would have it would have minimized, if you will, the latitude that was actually given in implementation. So mm-hmm. you know, even so, for example, Sartre Sancti Concilium, in some senses, says absolutely nothing new necessarily. There isn't anything controversial in there. So whether it be mass ad orientum, for example, there's nothing in the conciliar documents that prohibits it. Um, The difficulty is really then what happened was the concilium that was given the authority or given the responsibility and then the authority to interpret the document. Well, why don't we write a document that doesn't need interpretation? Why don't we write a document that is clear, which we had been doing, uh, and respond to a t- particular problem? It also begs the question with the Second Vatican Council. And even – so uh, I had to teach a class on the council, which was actually the best thing for me uh, because I had read Ooh. the documents. But I think I had my you – know, I'm, I'm a traditionalist by nature. Actually, a traditionalist by theological bent. I'm conservative by nature. So there was always kind sure. of a um, – uh, I won't call it a dismissal, but kind of a hermeneutic of suspicion toward the council. Even after I read all the documents, uh, and again, I am no uh, post-consider, I'm no scholar of the council, but have read enough now to feel comfortable dialoguing about it. And so John 
the 23rd, St. John the 23rd's document calling for the council is really quite beautiful and isn't nearly as radical in its articulation or in vision as to what actually transpired. And yet it begs the question, what was the necessity of this? Now, he speaks about the need for a new springtime. He also spoke, which we oftentimes forget, he spoke about addressing the church as the means to address the problems that were affecting modern man. I think the language that he used actually was the, the, the illness of, of modern man. Okay, so there already then was the articulation, the acceptance of we had the right thing to offer people, and then we began to also offer them all these things to more meet their needs as opposed to, wait a minute, we already had something to offer them. What he mm. wanted us to do was figure out the best way to offer them, not change what it is that we actually had to that offer. We offered. So mm. it, it does beg the question because most I – would, I would say this. Most of the councils, if not all the councils, prior to the Second Vatican Council were called because there were immediate issues in the life of the church that needed deliberation on that level of the church's authority. There wasn't that type of crisis in the life of the church herself. Was there in the world? Mm. Probably so. Actually, we know that so because the council opens in 58. Uh, by by the early 60s, I mean, the world's on fire. By 68, we know the world literally is on fire. So in a very literally, short period the- of time, the world, the world as people knew it across the board was falling apart. So there was something going on. Uh, I don't know if – and again, history will bear out the rightness or wrongness of this if the, if – at that time, the council was the best means of responding to that. And another point that I'll shut up for a minute, it's often, oftentimes forgotten historically that Pius XII was asked about and contemplated having a council and precisely chose not to and, and instead used documents like Divino Flanto or Humani Generis or others as ways of responding to Mediator Day, for example, the liturgy, as responding to what was being perceived as issues in the life of the church. So mm. – um, Okay, good. That that may have been a way. I don't know. So I, I do think back to your original question, to be clear, it's both a question of content and implementation for me. Yeah. No, and I would I would tend to agree with you. And I find myself similarly disposed in terms of my personal kind of ideology and bent, I guess. But but I do try to be, you know, open to these various things. And I do think that, you know, the 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 idea and the the virtue of unity and and harmony is something that we should all long for. And I just, um, you know, maybe I'm just not uh, sufficiently in one of the camps to kind of notice the, the points of friction as much as others might. But it's always, it's something that's, that's, um, that I've thought about quite a lot, especially lately with so, so much of this, you know, documentation and everything that's even going on in popular culture with the Eucharist, the Eucharistic revival and politicians and people flying to the Vatican because their bishop won't let them, you know, have communion in their own diocese. And there's so much conversation about yeah. all this right now that's even bleeding over into, you know, mainstream stuff that you normally don't see it in. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting time, but one that calls for, uh, you know, on, on, I think on some level, you know, better understanding um, and, and, and dialogue from, from, from all, all sides of it, um, because it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be improving, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm getting at. Maybe I'm looking at too pessimistic. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think, I think it is not improving at all. And uh, one of the things I have to personally guard myself against is I kind of live in my own little traditional bubble. Um, it's very easy, as you were describing it, it's very easy to become brittle in that. And it's one of the things that I try to work with with my people. Um, you know, we, 
we are embracing tradition not because we're running away from something, but because we're running with joy toward something. Toward something. And it's not yeah. – you know, that's not just a semantic distinction because then dispositionally, what am I doing? Am I, am I uh, picking up something that the church has in her arsenal – uh, as again, as a bludgeon, or as my picking it up as as you know the, the the true jewels, if you will, that come from the treasure trove of the life of the church, and so, and you know, we we are called to be one. We're called to be the body of Christ, and you know, the, I don't. The, the thing I found as a deacon that I find most difficult for me is that there is no, there are obviously things that have happened historically in the life of the church, um. There, there's something about what's happening in this, in our age, that just seems so unique that times yeah. I, I don't know what the playbook actually is. And Ooh. it's not to say ultimately we don't continue. I mean, ultimately we follow the Lord. And if we suffer and die, we rejoice that we've been found worthy to suffer in his name and we go about our business. But it's almost like, but but how, we, we've got to find a way. I don't know. There's some days I think we're, we're really on a brink of something very destructive for the body of Ooh. Christ. And we can't mm. on any level, whether it be from the Supreme Pontiff on down, we can't seem to find a way to pull ourselves back from that. Um, mm. So, I mean, I, I work on pulling myself back, but, you know, again, that's not enough. I think it, it has to happen, you know. And again, the beauty of this is this has been a good, great conversation, you know, um, to, to offer, I think, to some people that you can you can be on one side or the other and still engage each other you know you can of course and actually we we're supposed to be engaged we're supposed to love each other yeah you know, i think of a, i think of a uh a charles borromeo who beautifully reformed the diocese of milan and it's clear in the biography that was written almost about him upon his death was that he was successful in revitalizing a diocese that had really had really gone to rot especially in its presbyterate because he was a man of charity a man of great clarity obviously a great theologian had no problem, you know, making rules and regulations, but all the things he commanded, if you will, always were done with charity and love. And so even the Ooh. hardest hearts of priests who may have been resistant to what he was asking of them eventually thawed. And I think sometimes that's what, when I look at us in the church, I see what's happening in dominant culture, and it really has seeped in as the acrimony and the lack of charity and the lack of patience and it forbearance, has. you know. Um, it has. Yeah. I, I, I host another podcast um, called Unsiloed, and I do this with my business partner who is a secular, progressive, humanist, um, you know, and I'm, let's just say not, right? Here I am, this kind of conservative cleric, right? But 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 it's the dialogue, right? And he approaches these conversations with a real sense of mutual respect, understanding, and openness to hearing what I have to say. And I honestly very much try to do the exact same thing. But time after time, especially people in my industry, which is media, and I live in LA and I work in Hollywood, I mean, it's like, you know, but when people find out about this show and listen to it, the comments that we get consistently are like, I, I can't believe that conversation even exists. And, and it's always so shocking to me because it, to me, it's almost like a, what are you talking about? Like you, is the expectation that you only interact and talk to people that are exactly like you or, or, or view the world exactly like you. I mean, it, it, to me, it's, it's so strange, but it's a constant comment that happens. And I, and I think, you know, it happens in, in this case more from people who have a progressive ideology than, than they do another one. I think for conservatives, it's, it, it's, it tends to be a bit more of a logical thing. Like, Hey, we've got positions. We want to talk about them. But for my brothers and sisters who are on the more progressive side of the equation, this is something that comes up quite a bit as a, as a, as a very hard to compute reality that people would actually want to talk 
about things that they disagree with and do it in a spirit of mutual respect and try to understand. That doesn't mean you change your point of view. It doesn't mean that I go, oh yeah, suddenly I'm na- now I'm now I'm a agnostic. No, that that's not what the outcome is. But in the dialogue, there's something that's good that can happen, and it can you know fortify our sense of of at the very least you know human relatedness, right? And and we need a lot of that right now. But it's it's just fascinating to me that 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 dynamic is looked at in such, so suspiciously or or foreign. You know, as a foreign thing. I was just in Northern California. I won't say specifically where, but I'm visiting my family uh, that lives there and for some graduations. And I noticed that both of the commencement speakers, so this was a, a grade school graduation, a high school graduation, um, were very comfortable in assuming that their audience accepted the dominant leftist narrative on everything. Yes. And uh, people were polite to me. I was in my collar, but I, I could see, um, I won't call it shock because these are too sophisticated to register shock. They're too well-mannered, but just kind of like, who is this guy? He's an interloper in this. And so my mm-hmm. friends back here asked me, how did you, how did you, how did you interact when you were there? I'm like, I just kept my mouth shut. I mean, I, you know, I, I was only there for a few days. I was not going to convince them. Um, and as you were describing, it was going to take more energy to actually get them to the point where, um, I could convince them that someone had a different perspective from theirs. Yeah. I think even though I wore my collar, they just probably assumed that I, I accepted and believed all the, the pressure, sure. all the, all the, all the, uh, you know, uh, bullet points of the, of the leftist agenda. Uh, okay. Well, th- great. I'm not going to uh, disabuse them of that, but therein lies, as you say, therein lies the problem. We be, but then I do think I see that sometimes again with my faithful and the, in the circles that I run in more, more, more now, that we have to guard against that as well, that we don't become so ossified that we can't engage someone else. And again, as I said earlier, um, I'm okay having a conversation because I'm not worried that you're going to say something to me that's going to make me lose my faith. You actually might say Mm. something to me, though, that will actually help me grow in my faith. I don't know. I mean, since God can write straight with all sorts of different lines, crooked and otherwise, who's to say? You know, again, not that I'm open to everything. I'm not going to necessarily, you know, engage the, you know, devil worship or whatever it is. But uh, again, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying more often than not be open, but just, you know, this, this brittleness and this, and again, not to over theologize it, but you know, we're both in, in the business, if you will, at, at the heart of one of the theological converse, our theological principles of talking about the Trinity is dialogue and conversation. Correct. You know, so if at the heart of God himself is the dialogical, there seems to be be the necessity, not just the opportunity, Correct. the necessity of the dialogical in human relationships. If we're created in his image and likeness, then we're created for dialogue. You've just heard part one of this conversation between Deacon Charlie and Monsignor Eugene Morris. Be sure to come back next week for the second half where the two will dive into a discussion on diversity in the church and their thoughts on the current landscape of the permanent diaconate in the church.